Hi, Jasmine Lopez here. If you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us by going to radioproject.org and click on the big donate button. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes, which helps other listeners find us. Thanks, and here's the show. Making, making contact. Making, contact. Making, making, making contact. This week on Making Contact. Black young people are not sort of afforded this sort of notion of, of childhood. One scholar calls the life worlds that black people have to live through accelerated childhoods. That's why a white police officer walking through a park in somewhere like Cleveland could see a 12-year-old boy and mistake that boy for a man and shoot them to death. Or it's why young black kids in certain neighborhoods, or most of them really, can be seen as overwhelmingly in possession of strength. So much so that if they're wearing a hoodie and carry a Snapple, Ice, some type of iced tea bottle or Skittles that we can, you know, take up arms and kill them. On this edition, we'll hear from Darno Moore, a writer and activist whose work is characterized by anti-racist, feminist queer, and anti-colonial thought and advocacy. Mr. Moore recently wrote, No Ashes in the Fire, Coming of Age, Black and Free in America. Shortly, we'll share a talk with Darno Moore exploring thoughts of trauma, liberation, and love as framed in his new book, No Ashes in the Fire. I'm Anita Johnson, your host this week on Making Contact, a program connecting people, vital ideas, and important information. What I want to do is talk a bit about some of the questions, themes that have been um, animating the book. Uh, I think you'll hear freedom for all of us. So first, what were some of the questions that were fueling my writing? And I offer these because not only were there questions I tried to answer, but I I offer them as questions for you too. What forces shaped your becoming? Who are your people and how might their presences or absences shape you? What people institutions, laws, ideas, ideologies, theologies cause you to stare back at the reflection you love or one you learn to despise? Whose hands held you? Whose hands hurt you? What do you believe? And who taught you to believe what you do? And how do you know that what you believe is just, that it's loving, that it's right? Who hurt you? Who have you hurt? And how did and does those hurts keep you from giving or receiving love today? These questions were really questions about my becoming, how how I came to be who I am in the world today. And I sought to sort of search out the, the sort of parts of myself across the expanse of my life. I write in a prologue that this book is a search for self, a quest for history, because we come to be the people we are within a context of a larger world ruled by powerful, insidious forces. And I go on to name some of them, at least the ones that were present shaping my life. And I say, the long collected hatred of blackness, the calculated policing of sexual differences, the intentional ghettoization of urban centers, and the allure of the American dollar are just a few of those forces that shape me. And I wanted to use narrative as a way to sort of figure out how they did their shaping and how I became who I was. 
And part of the way I try to do that is by exploring these what I call invisible hands. So how many, like, I don't know if you, if you experienced this, but growing up, I did not have all the language I have now. I mean, clearly, right? Well, I mean, I want to believe that I did when I was about 10, that I could talk about intersectionality and can talk about environmental racism and can wax poetic about feminist politics. I didn't have the language, but I did have an awareness. I knew growing up that something going on, a lot of things going on around me weren't right in the ethers. And I like to say often we believe, some of us, that people who live in urban spaces or rural spaces, black folk, brown folk, uh, poor folk, somehow don't have analysis, that they don't get what's going on if they're not using the words that the choir use. And y'all know what I mean, because you know, sometimes we, we talk in our circles. I mean, I think many of us in this room might call ourselves progressive. We might name ourselves as part of the left. And when folk don't use the language that we use, we tend to think that they don't get it. But I come from a place and from a people who absolutely understood the conditions through which they were coming to be in the world in Camden, New Jersey. And I want to talk about that. I talk about what I discerned growing up, even if I did not have the language to sort of to really put my finger on what was happening in my communities. This is why it was important for me to talk about Camden, precisely because of the ways Camden, New Jersey had been talked about by everybody else. So if you don't know, when I was growing up in the 80s, Camden was named one of the most economically devastated, our most poor, and most violent cities in the country. But this is typically what happens, right? Like, I mean, this is the same can be said of Gary, Indiana, um, Detroit, and so many other places. But that's all I heard when I was growing up, that Camden was the hood, that Camden was the ghetto. When I would look at the newspapers, the only stories I read were those that, would be, that were written under the sort of guise of a deficit analysis. Somehow the people, my people, my family, the people that I live next door to, the people who look like me, were taught and led to believe that we were the reasons that the city that had everyone else had called a ghetto was precisely what it was because of our being there. That somehow Camden was not a consequence of a long history of invisible and not so invisible hands, be they political malfeasance, white flight, which was a result of the type of racial uh, animus that was happening in post-industrial cities like Camden, when some of the folk there felt that some of the folk who were coming in too dark for their liking, moving into their neighborhoods, was also bringing along um, sort of cultural pathology that was making the community what it was. They didn't talk about the, the, the laws that, and things that were done in cities like mine. Like I grew up on a street where, where you would walk outside, 1863 Broadway is where we lived, and if you walked outside every day, it would smell like feces. And I was a kid, and I would wonder, why does my street smell like this? Well, it would take a long time, maybe about two decades, for me to discover that the reason why my neighborhood smelled like feces is because some lawmakers had decided that Camden, which is this municipal seat, the, 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 the sort of hub of the county, would be the place that all of the suburban neighborhoods would send their feces. It would send their toilet stuff all down to our city and, and, and to the municipal plant and treat it in a neighborhood where black and, and, and Latinx folk lived. So we had to smell the suburban people's 
But all I knew was that my city just was somehow devastated, not only by this stench, this material, like this literal stench, but by the sort of stench that also is associated with all of the negative uh, talk that was going on about the city. Nobody told me in school from K to 12 that the city is what it was because of a long calculated history of disenfranchisement, political, economic, social disinvestment, and so much else. And not because, as I say in a book, quote, niggas and spicks live there. The things I discovered about my family were important to me. My family, who I loved, my black family, who I adored, who also made life, um, and, and who, who made life possible in a space like Camden, I also wanted to explore in a book. I, I write um, and, and talk about, or try to get at a history of the city by exploring my great-grandmother Alpernius' plight. And what I discovered, and this is what I didn't find out until, until I started writing a book, is um, the reason why our family sort of was plunged into economic despair. Alpernia, who had come up from Virginia with her mother, um, not knowing how to read, working a lot of hours to take care of the family, taught herself to read while working and taking care of kids, saved money, purchased a house, lost the house that she purchased in 1977, a year after I was born, um, there was a notice in the Courier Post. And I was, I was sort of taken by the fact that I saw this notice, not because Alpernia had done, you know, had been talked about as being a sort of black woman who had made family despite loss, not because of her audacious sort of uh, courage and her ability to, to make do, but because of loss. She lost her home, which is also a story of so many black folk in um, when you examine a history of sort of real estate and redlining in this country and mortgages, you find out that this story of Pernia's was not unique. So through my family, I also come up and run up against these histories of disenfranchisement that take effect in very material ways in my own family. She would not be the first to lose her home. My grandfather, who was like a father to me, um, owned a home that was a, a place of refuge for so many of us. It's gone now, literally, it's gone. He lost it after he died. Um, but the home was also demolished, so that if we walk back into, that neighbor, into the neighborhood, that's the only house in the street that's no longer there. I also wanted to delve into the life of my parents. So. My mom, Diane, um, and my father, Grafton, who my Grafton, my father passed, um, they were kids when they had me. My father was 15 and my mom was 16, and I honestly did not sit with the sort of uh, profound um, prospect, like the idea of that until I was writing a book. For some reason, you know, you know, even if you have young parents, in your mind, they're only parents. We somehow, um, think about young parents as already always being adults, particularly black parents. I wanted to talk about the life world of black young people and to remember that my dad, who had me at 15, was a kid, a black boy, raising a black boy. And I wondered who taught him what he knew about black boyhood and manhood. 
because he would go on and demonstrate that some of those lessons that he was taught were wrong. And I also wanted to explore the life world of a black girl. So often when we talk and think about black life, or when people get to talk about black life, we tend to listen to black cisgender men. I'm a cisgender writer, a black man, and I wanted to challenge myself to write about black life by also centering the black girls and women who were essential to making my life possible. And the last thing I wanted to do was explore what I call black radical love. I know Bell Hooks challenged me once on this. She said, why do you call it black radical love? It's love. I said, no, it's black radical love. I feel like love as a concept is so emptied of meaning as a neoliberal concept. And I want to be very specific with what I mean by love. And the way I come to understand love is by thinking about how my family treated one another. Not as some like hallmarkish idea, not as this sort of thing that I learned in somebody's feminist notebook, not as something I got in the work with progressives and leftists, but my family was a type of family that even if you did them wrong two weeks before, you know, you got those cousins that steal stuff. No, I mean, I'm gonna keep it real. Family member that just always doing the wrong thing over and over and over again, even after you tell them not to. But you know what my family did when that person would knock on the door in need of help, in need of a place to lay their head? They would let them in. It's why my home was often full of people who slept on floors, on comforters, in basements, on the sofas, three or four many families in this home where there's only three bedrooms because they would not dispose of their people. You're listening to Darnell Moore discuss his book, No Ashes in the Fire, Coming of Age, Black and Free in America. This is Making Contact. Subscribe to our podcast. Sign up for Making Contact updates. Take our survey or join the conversation on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. First lesson I ever learned about love was through a black, working poor family in Camden, New Jersey, and it's the most important lesson that I've carried with me to this day. I wanted to explore that. Um, more specifically, in moving to some central themes are points that I tried to make in the book. I, I mentioned my father and why it was important for me to talk about him. But I should say that uh, writing about his life has changed me in so many ways. So what you should know is that my father died when I started writing this book. Um, that's important to note. Uh, it's important to note that he had me at 15, that he died at 55, because sort of morbidity, so many of our people die in these ways. He died of heart issues. I think both the type of heart issues that impacted him materially, that is, in his body, and I also think the weighty heart issues that he had not fully dealt with in terms of his guilt. In one of the chapters, I talk about my father as being in possession of beautiful and yet violent hands. 
And I begin that chapter by detailing how he taught me how to wash. Um, and interestingly enough, I learned to hate him because, you know, the same hands that this young 23-year-old at the time used to teach me how to wash, and it was an interesting uh, sort of picture that I draw in the book where we're both naked in the bathtub. He's 23 and I'm six, or eight, wait, 26, 20, I can't do math. I write, so forgive me. I should say that it was important for me to write about a black boy and his father in a bathtub naked for a couple reasons. One, whenever people tell me they read that, so many people say, I got scared as I was getting closer to the end of the story. And I say, why? And they say, because I thought something violent sexually was going to happen. And I think, how strange is it that any notion or any mention of a black boy and his father are black boys are men together naked in any space only somehow always first conjures violence. How, how violent of an idea is that? Which is not to say that violence doesn't happen. We know that it does. And it most often is um, perpetrated by people who are closest to us, namely family members. But it made me think about how much ideological havoc has been wreaked such that any, any sort of uh, image of black men in close proximity, boys, men, daddy and father, without, in a, in a space like a bathtub naked, only ever factors as a site of violence Why can't black boys and men be humanized or be seen as human? Why can't black girls, black women, those who eschew those categories altogether, what might it mean if we were to reimagine black boys and men as actually being in possession of safety and love? But it was important for me to open that picture with my dad that way because um, the other side of the story is that I watched him brutalize my mother for a long period in my life. And sometimes he, to the point, or at least in his mind, to the point of wanting to kill her. And this was a contradiction for me um, growing up. And this is why I hated him. And I use those words. And, and I actually remember praying to God because I was a very religious boy who prayed for A's, who would learn to pray for boyfriends and for his dad to be killed. And I, I, I did pray that prayer. Um, the, the, the sort of hate was real, but here is what got me, two things. When I talked to my mom and asked her, why, how, how is it that you come to sort of still respect this man who hurt you so? Um, like, why don't you hate him? And she said, well, because I've known him since he was a child. Literally, since he was a child. You know, they had me as children. And I got to see a full sort of um, array of who he is. 
yes, he hurt me, but the same person who hurt me, and, and she, she was clear that she doesn't, um, she holds him accountable and see those acts as things that she named as wrong, was the same person that saved her when she was almost sexually assaulted when she was a kid. He slept outside in the backyard of her house to protect her every night, and even though he thought he was tough, the dude beat him up. So he got beat up for protecting the, the, the girl that he would learn to beat. When she didn't eat, he would bring her money and bring her food. And what she taught me in that was the value in really discerning and, and understanding one's full complexity without, or rather, even as you hold them accountable. That was important because my dad died, you know, when I was writing this, and on his deathbed, I was standing before a person that um, I didn't think I would be able to talk to um, or eulogize or celebrate. And at his deathbed, um, I was holding my sister's hands, my three sisters' hands, I just said to him while he was unconscious, I, I know that you are heavy, and I know that whatever weights you have been carrying are weighing you down, and whatever those weights are, I want you to let them go and fly. And he passed not too long um, after that. He transitioned. Um, the other thing I tried to focus on, too, was my mother's story. And that was like, so, you know, I wanted to try to write a narrative that you could read and without ever using the word intersectionality that Kimberly Crenshaw coined, you would get it. You know, so many times I, I, I felt like, how can I, can I write this in such a way that folk who may not have ever heard that term, once they hear it, after having read this story, it might make sense for them. My mom had me at 16 in Camden, um, left school, or was forced to stop going to school at 10th grade. And in fact, she didn't end up getting her high school diploma until the age of 50 because she ended up having to work to ensure that my sisters and I were okay, making minimum wage that was about $3.75 an hour to pick boxes up from the back of a truck and put them out onto the aisle at Bradley's department store. Um, I once walked with her to the municipal welfare office where she walked literally into a glass door and it bust her head. And I thought, now that's a damn metaphor. So this, the fist of her, of, her, of her man, as she would call it, or her boyfriend, her partner was swinging at her, but so too were the fists of the state. So too was the sort of weight of patriarchy and sexism and the type of idea that says, you're a girl, you had this kid, you stay home and take care of it. Men, you go do what you do. You go be, the boy, you go be a man. Which is why I was able to go get three degrees before she got her diploma. Um, so her story, the, sto the story of the girls and women in my life also was one of the things I wanted to get across. The other thing was about black queerness. You know, black queerness as both a site of violence and as a, a site for life making. It's both a, a way to think about pain and magic. I mean, the name of the book, No Ashes in a Fire, references a, um, an incident that occurred at 14. These four boys physically attacked me. Um, one of them took a gallon of gasoline and emptied it on me and then tried to light a match. 
And um, that day it was like, it was sort of quite, it wasn't really windy, but the, it, it just, I don't know. I, I, I counted this as a divine act when I was a kid, you know, because I was a holy roller. So anything was God's doing. Um, but the, the match, the light, the flame kept being uh, knocked out by the wind. I was hospital. I had to go to the hospital, hospital and get all of the gasoline. Like I literally, it was, I, I swallowed gasoline. Um, but, and, and all of that had to do with the way that these young folk had been, or at least this one person, so incensed by my presentation in a community. Well, it wasn't, I don't, they had less to do with me being gay. They didn't know if I was gay or not. I think that they were most impacted by my gender presentation, the fact that I just sort of moved differently than the boys did. I had a little, a little movement in my walk. I, I played with the girls, which is, tends to be what happens, right? Like, so often our, the violence that's inflicted has everything to do with how we're reading people's bodies and their expressions. So this, this title, No Ashes in the Fire, is really a way of me saying um, that even when fires are set or attempted to be set, some of us survive and, no, no, and there are no ashes therefore to be left. Anyway, inevitably I really wanted to know what it means to truly love black people and to truly love oneself. Um, particularly within an industry that hasn't been too kind to those of us, one, who are black, especially those of us who are black and queer and trans and gender nonconforming. And in the prologue, I say, this story is not new, and my story is not unique. Black, queer, transgender, and gender nonconforming people in America are bearers of narratives of struggle and triumph despite the ways intimates and strangers have attempted to force us to silence our sexual desires. Our stories, like our lives, are complex, beautiful, profound, disappointing, hopeful, varied, and often disregarded. We have always been here. Black, queer, transgender, and gender nonconforming people loved and sexed, I won't use the word I used there, in the church, <laughs> on some racist master's plantations. We wrote theories debunking white racist supremacist ideology. We too were architects of black liberation, women's justice, anti-war movements, and the black arts. We are the unarmed, unnamed black sisters, brothers, and non-binary people who lived queer theory before it was popular among those in white academy. We are James Baldwin, Jackie Moms Mabley, Richard Bruce Nugent, Byatt Rustin, Pauli Murray, June Jordan, and so many more. But in 2018, these are the names some still refuse to remember and celebrate. We are the alive, the dead, lovers, fighters, movement builders, cultural producers. We are the everyday ordinary magicians who learn to create life amid death-dealing cultures of hatred and lies. We maroon ourselves and we birth freedom. But many of us are still denied our rightful place in a master narrative of black history, in American life, even in these progressive, Afro-futuristic oriented times, our life stories and contributions are still refused. And that is why we must tell as many as, of our stories as we can. No ashes in the fire is mine. Thank you. So much.
that'll do it for this edition of Making Contact. No ashes in the fire. Coming of age black and free in America. Special thanks to KPFA for hosting and recording this conversation featuring Darnell Moore. If you're still trying to wrap your head around the idea of black fragility in America or radical love, share this episode with a friend and dialogue or join us online at www.radioproject.org for further comment. You can also subscribe to our podcast or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. The Making Contact team is Lisa Rudman, Monica Lopez, Salima Hamarani, Anita Johnson, Sabine Blazin, and Viratai Kolsker. I'm Anita Johnson. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. Music